0: If you're new here this Sunday, we have been going systematically through the book of Joshua. We come today to Joshua chapter 21. So if you turn in your Bibles or pick up a pew Bible and turn with us to the book of Joshua. Uh, It's Joshua 21 uh, this morning, which is found on page 227 in your pew Bible, page 227. Often in this series in Joshua, we have been tested in our view of Scripture It's the Apostle Paul says all scripture is God breathed and is useful uh, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man of God, the woman of God may be equipped to every good work. Uh, I'm guessing not too many of us here have memorized too many verses from Joshua uh, chapter 21 or perhaps spent a lot of time with this. But God tells us that this is somehow useful for us. Uh, it can help us live our lives more effectively. And, of course, it begs the question, what possibly can we find in Joshua chapter 21 uh, that relates to 21st century America and specifically the Wayzata Evangelical Free Church? Well, as we look at this chapter, just by way of overview, uh, it is a chapter that identifies the 48 Levitical cities that are to be established in New Israel. You say, yawn, why would we care about the... Uh, Forty eight Levitical uh, cities. Uh, Also, as we look at this, uh, we know that there are a number of contemporary archaeologists uh, from Israel, Old Testament archaeologists, Jewish archaeologists uh, who look at this chapter and say that they're pretty certain uh, that several of these 48 cities were not occupied by the Jews at the time of Joshua. Now, there's some who conclude from that. Well, obviously, this is Old Testament fairy tale. Uh, this is a chapter in the Bible uh, discussing things that clearly were just not true. Now, I can look at this and say, why do we need to dispute that some of these cities were not occupied by the Jews at this time with what we know, of what we've seen so far in the book of Joshua? What we've seen is that the book of Joshua is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise that God gave to Abraham uh, right around the uh, 2000 B.C. And that promise was, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And Paul says it's the son par excellence, ultimately Jesus. But I'm going to I'm going to give you a son. And through your family, the whole world is going to be blessed. And I'm going to give you a land. I mean, that was basically the Abrahamic promise. God also says in Genesis 15:16, we've got to let the sins of the Amorites be fulfilled. That is, give these Canaanites every opportunity Uh, to come to faith in me. So I'm not going to give you this land right away because my compassion, love is such that I want every man, every woman, every child to have the opportunity to turn to me. So the time of Abraham was a little bit before 2000 B.C. The time of uh, Joshua is 1300 B.C. You can do the math. So God waited 700 years uh, for the Canaanites uh, to turn to him, the Amorites, the Hittites, all these ites uh, in the land because he had compassion on them. And now God says, "Okay, now it's time. Uh, for the people of Israel to fulfill the promise. We're going to give them uh, this land of, of promise. But theites are still there. They're all over this land. Uh, the city of Jebus, which became Jerusalem, at this very time uh, was not in uh, Israelite possession. It was still a Canaanite city possessed by pagans. And so what we see in the book of Joshua is that they're going in, they're starting to take the land, but they don't have it all, nor do they have all the cities. So we look at uh, Joshua chapter uh, 21 and can say easily, this is a vision for the future. This is Israel's five-year plan, their ten-year plan. Uh, The idea is we want to impact a nation for God. How are we going to do that? Well, some of what we need to do is to recognize we can't just have cities of refuge. We locked, We looked at them last week. The city of refuge is where you go and you are safe and you never, ever leave that city. You stay in that city all your life or until the high priest dies. Now, if that's all they had in Israel was cities of refuge, they never would have impacted the nation with the good news of God. So we got to have some Levitical cities. Some of these are sites that were not yet possessed by the people of Israel. So the idea is, here's the plan. You want to impact a nation, you've got to think strategically. Uh, You've got to think about, what are you going to do in Carlson Company for God? You've got to think about, what are you going to do at a high school for God? You've got to think about, what are you going to do over in Poland for God or Mongolia for God? You've got to mark out strategically the places where you need to go with the good news of God and say, now let's strategically lay this out if we want to impact the entire nation for God. And that's what we see happening, it seems to me, uh, in uh, Joshua uh, chapter 21. Well, maybe we can uh, just uh, reinforce my point a little bit. I've not been real pleased with these maps. So let's uh, show the map. Uh, all these dots, you, you can see these dots scattered over. all. The, you see all the dots scattered in uh, this area. This is Jerusalem, Jericho. As I said, Jerusalem was not... Uh, occupied by the Israelites at this time. This is a heavy concentration of the population uh, in this area. There aren't as many Levitical cities on this side of the Jordan. I mean, they're scattered throughout. If you look at all those dots, you find out that they are scattered uh, throughout all of Israel. It was approximately four Levitical cities for each tribe. Four times 12 is 28. There's one tribe that only had three, one tribe that had five. But also, strategically, you can see they're scattered out all over especially where the population was the heaviest. And so you can say, well, if this is a plan, a strategy uh, for impacting uh, this nation for God, what would you do? Well, you look where the population groups are and say, here's an area where it seems like these people yet need to know about God. Let's uh, let's uh, establish a city there, a beach there eventually. You know, here's another uh, area. If you look at this, you can see some of these cities are on the edge of, of the territories that Israel had conquered. So it's like, okay, now if we want to go out into the next area, let's uh, let's put a beachhead here and they're going to reach out from here into this uh, this new area. So it's pretty obvious that this was a strategy uh, for uh, impacting Israel. Again, my question is, all right, so that's Old Testament stuff. What does that mean to you and to me? The Levites were priests. We're not priests, are we? Think about that for a minute. Uh, In the book of Acts, uh, at Pentecost, something rather significant happens, as you perhaps know. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes down upon uh, first 120 people and then several thousand. And what occurs there uh, is that we find now that there are people in the church that begin to prophesy and do priestly kinds of functions and uh, the distinction between the New Testament and and the Old Testament, the Old Testament, we had prophets, priests and kings uh, that were the special servants of God. And then you had everybody else to just kind of let those servants do their thing in the New Testament. Post Pentecost. Now, what is significant is that all of us can have the Holy Spirit of God come upon us and all of us can be involved in ministry. All of us can do the sorts of things that the prophets, priests and kings uh, did in the Old Testament. Unless we doubt that, just look at what Peter says in uh, in Peter. You are a royal priesthood. You are a kingdom of priests. And so the idea is, just like those priests function in the Old Testament, that's now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, what every one of us have the opportunity to do in the New Testament church. So if we're accepting our job description post-Pentecost, if we believe what Peter says in First Peter, uh, we should take a special interest in what were these priests supposed to do because we're supposed to be priests uh, in the New Testament church. So uh, with that, uh, by way of introduction, let's ask the question, what are these priests supposed to do in all these Levitical cities? What's this all about? And again, how does that relate to you and me? Well, first of all, uh, if we say, what is the job description of a priest? What's my job description as a priest? Well, the first job description is that the priests were called to worship. You say, where that come from? I, uh, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, Uh, We noted that in the allotment of the territory of the tribes, there was one tribe that didn't get any territory. The tribe of Simeon. Remember that if you were here a couple weeks ago? Uh, And as we looked at it and said, well, why is there a tribe in Israel that doesn't get an inheritance? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 34, you find out why. Uh, Simeon and Levi uh, single handedly took out their vengeance on a city called Shechem. Uh, These were uh, pagans who at, the, at this point in time in the story want to turn to God. And they say, what do we have to do uh, to become one of you, to be like you and have the relationship with your God that you have? Well, the introductory right is circumcision. So if you're really serious about meaning business with God, what you have to do is that every male here, all of your soldiers need to be circumcised. And then that's the first step toward our God becoming a reality in your life. So they did it, the whole city. Right after all these men in the city uh, allowed themselves to be circumcised so that they could make right with God, Levi and Simeon came to town and killed every one of them. Now God says, that's not what I want my people doing. And if you look at uh, Genesis 34, you find in that context, for that sin, Levi and Simeon are both told... You are not going to have any land when you go into the promised land. Your tribe, your people, will not have any territory when you go into the, uh, the land. And we, uh, you can read about that uh, further in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 49, for those of you who want to check this out. It's, it's Genesis 34, 24 through 30, and then uh, Genesis 49, 5 through 7. Did we have those verses? Okay, well, anyway, those are the, uh, those are the verses. Uh, we saw Simeon never, never got any uh, territory. They got a bunch of cities. They were in the territory of Judah, so the curse on Simeon is carried out as uh, they, they get the land. Well, that ought to beg a question in your mind. If Levi, as a tribe, is being judged, what happened? Why are they now all of a sudden in such a special role for God? And hey, we're going to give them 48 cities. I mean, this, this people group that have come from this man that was doing vengeance and God saying, because of that, there are going to be consequences you're going to have to live with and all your people are going to have to live with. What happened? Well, there's another story that helps us understand what happened for Levi. That's critical as we think about who we are as well. That story is found in the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter uh, 32. You can pick up the context in verse 26. Some of you may know this story. Uh, Moses was going up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. He's in the very presence of God. The, you know, the, the mountain is thundering and there's lightning and flashing. Obviously, there's something pretty cool going on up there. The people down below are getting a little bit impatient. And so they make a golden calf. Let's worship the golden calf because Moses is probably never going to come back again. Let's do this, uh, uh, this sort of thing. So all Israel sins before the golden calf. And God raises the question, who is for me of the entire tribe of Israel? There was one tribe and only one tribe that stepped up and said, God, we're for you. It was the tribe of Levi, the only tribe. So, as you look at that story in Exodus, uh, we find out that God says, You know, uh, tribe of Levi, you know, told you you can't have any, you know, specific territory in the past, but because of your love and your dedication and your desire to serve me, you are going to be a special tribe. I've got a special role for you. You're going to be dedicated uh, to me. And you say, What is that dedication all about? Well, it's about wholehearted surrender. And you see where this comes from. They demonstrated we're ready to surrender to God no matter what. If nobody else wants to follow, we will follow God. And God says, I want to reward that kind of follower. And so he does. He says, uh, you're going to be special. We come to the book of Joshua and say, well, special how? Joshua 13, 14. The offerings of fire are your inheritance, O tribe of Levi. You say, offerings of fire, who cares about that until we ask, what are the offerings of fire about? What about the privilege of taking people into the very presence of God? That's what it's about. You get to do that, uh, tribe of, of, of Levi. Uh, continuing on in the book of Joshua, uh, we find uh, in Joshua chapter 13 and verse 33, God says, I, the Lord, am your inheritance, O tribe of Levi. So something special for you, other people are getting land, you get me. Oh, uh, already we can begin to see some implications of this. if we're to be a New Testament priests, uh, a couple things we can conclude. Apparently, you can be a New Testament priest based upon what happened with these Old Testament priests if you've screwed up royally. If you've blown it so badly, uh, you can say, I don't know that God would ever have a place for me because you don't know what I did. Apparently, uh, people like that can be used of God mightily because that's the background of these priests. Uh, apparently, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter how awful your sins are. If you come to the point where you're ready to say, God, I'm for you. Uh, I want to give myself to you no matter what anybody else does. I want to follow you. God can say to somebody like that, a, a family like that, well, Lord, I can use you. I can use you to accomplish uh, my purposes. So don't let the enemy whisper in your ear what he invariably wants to whisper. Because of who you are, because of what you've done, you can never do anything for Jesus. It's not true. It's just not true. Well, what was their uh, priestly role in worship then? Well, I think they had two functions. First was They were to bring people into the very presence of God Almighty. Uh, If you've been with us in the study in the book of Joshua, think about what we've seen in the book of Joshua to this point and what the priests did. Uh, As they were going across the Jordan River, remember the scene? Uh, There's there's this amphitheater effect where they went down uh, this rather significant uh, hill, and there was a significant hill on the other side, and the people of Israel were up on the hill looking down as the priests went down with the Ark of the Covenant of God uh, to the edge of the river. And then the Jordan River, which we saw from Joshua 311, was at flood stage. So a mile and a half or so wide, uh, you know, significantly deep, rushing water. Uh, and as the priests entered out into the river, river, yeah, river, like Elmer Fudd here, but as they entered out into the river, the river, <laughs> that's such a hard word to pronounce, the river backed up 26 miles. And the priests with the Ark of the Covenant of God stood in the middle of that river until all the Israelites came down and they walked across the river and then up the other side, and you say, "What was that all about?" Well, it was about these priests having the Ark of the Covenant of God, which you remember represents the very presence and the power of God in the midst of God's people. You just look at uh, the uh, book of Samuel, 1 Samuel uh, in First Samuel, in First Samuel chapter uh, four. Uh, And in chapter five, when the Philistines find out that the Ark of the Covenant of God is being brought into the camp of the Israelites, what they say is God has come into the camp. They know the significance of this. Or remember the story we saw uh, in the uh, the occasion when the people of Israel uh, were laying siege to Jericho. They're going to go around the city uh, seven days. Jericho, many believe. Uh, to be the most ancient city, perhaps even in the world, to 8,000 B.C. or thereabouts. Of course, it depends on how old you think cities are. But but in any case, it was a pretty old city. Uh, it was a fortified city. Remember, it had two walls uh, in the city separated by about 20 miles. These walls were, were tall and they were thick. And this looked like a pretty impossible task. What does God say he wants them to do? Well, have the priests uh, with the Ark of the Covenant you know, on their shoulders, have them walk around the city because that's going to demonstrate uh, that this is by the power of God that this city is going to fall, have those priests walk around uh, and then blow the trumpets on the seventh day and the walls will fall down. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. So the priests in Joshua represents the very power and the presence of God to the people. You say, what does that mean to me? Well, that's your job. That's your job now. We're a kingdom of priests. As we reach out to uh, friends and others, the question I have to ask is, when people look at me, do they see something about the power and the presence of God in me? That was a foundational uh, challenge for the priest. That was uh, job one for the priests. Uh, that that's what they were supposed to do. Now, the other thing that we can say is, not just were they to bring people into the presence of God, they were to bring God into the presence of the people. They say, where do you get that, uh, George? Well, I get that from these Levitical cities. Um, if you look at, uh, as I said, the Levitical cities, some of them were not occupied at these times. These were pagan cities. So what's happening here? Well, let's figure out how to uh, go to TCF Bank and do something for Jesus and Carlson Company and do something for Jesus and take this out you know, into the highways and the byways where you know, people aren't necessarily ready to hear about uh, Jesus. This is not just a city of refuge here where we come and we're secure and we stay here and we don't do anything outside these walls. We're going to be strategic. We've got to get outside the wall so that people can see there's a powerful God who can make a difference in our world. So we go out. Uh, Also, as uh, uh, we'll see in a couple verses later, the priests were expected from these Levitical cities to go out to other cities. So we have 48 Levitical cities. But as they go to these 48 Levitical cities, it's not like, okay, now we have the church building. We're done. Everything that happens for God happens here now. Because the job of the priests, you can read it in Scripture, was to go from these Levitical cities out to other places, other cities, where they're going to teach and talk about the presence and the power of God. So uh, the strategy is obvious here. If the church of Jesus Christ is is bound within some walls, uh, the church of Jesus Christ are not functioning as priests. We're not. It's only when we see we've got to take the story of the power and the presence of God somehow outside of this uh, into the Places where people don't know about God, that's what we, we need to do. I came across a story. I, I did, not Paul Beerhaus gets credit for this. He sent this to me this week. So you get good stories. Don't hesitate to send them to me. Um, this is a story about a little girl who would know something about the power and the presence of God. Uh, a little girl who uh, went into her bedroom and got her jelly bean jar that had all the money that she owned in the world. She took the jelly bean jar down and then went down to the local Rexall drugstore with the you know the big Indian you know, wooden Indian chief out front, walked inside, walked up to the counter, put her jelly bean jar on the, on the counter, shuffled her feet. The pharmacist wasn't paying a whole lot of uh, attention. She cleared her throat, and he still wasn't paying any attention. Then she banged her jar on the counter and finally got his attention, and he looked at her, and said, what do you want? And uh, she said, I want to buy a miracle. You want to buy a miracle? What do you mean you want to buy a miracle? Well, my, uh, my, my brother is sick, my mommy and daddy told me uh, that the only way he is going to be able to live uh, is, is, is with a miracle. Well, that uh, got the pharmacist's uh, uh, attention. And the pharmacist was talking to his, uh, his brother at the time. And, you know, the brother uh, started asking questions. Then, Well, t- tell me, why, why do your parents think your little brother needs a, a miracle? Well, mommy and daddy uh, say that uh, m- my brother's got something going on in his head. It would take a miracle and it would take a lot of money to be able to fix it. And we can't afford it. We don't have the money to be able to do it. So I, I brought my money here uh, so that I could buy a miracle uh, for my brother. And so this uh, distinguished looking gentleman from Chicago said, so, and, and how much money do you have? She, she counted it out. It was a, a dollar eleven. She said, I got more. I can get more. If this is not enough to buy a miracle, um, I'll get whatever I need. But I need to buy a miracle for my for my brother. Well, it just uh, so happened that the well-dressed man was Dr. Carlton Armstrong, a surgeon specializing in neurosurgery. Uh, he went and looked at the little boy and determined that it was something that he would be able to address. Uh, there was a surgery that was performed, which he did for free. Uh, the boy was cured. And as a mom and dad of this little girl were talking about it uh, later, the uh, mom said, "That surgery was a miracle. I wonder how much it would have cost, should have cost." Tess, the little girl smiled. She knew exactly how much a miracle costs: one dollar and eleven cents. If you don't know the story of Brett Mickelson from our church, ask the Mickelson family how this rings true for what God has done for Brent Mickelson. Same sort of story, God intervening in a powerful way when it looked like Brent Mickelson didn't know what to do, what the family could do, how to address the heart uh, issue that he was facing. And all of a sudden, God pops a doctor who hears the story just like this one who intervenes. This particular doctor is the specialist in the world for the particular problem that Brent Mickelson faces One thing leads to another, and Brett Mickelson has had a surgery, and he is fine. Is there a God in heaven who has power, who can demonstrate his presence, and do we have a story to tell as a kingdom of priests as we encourage people to enter into his presence? Well, that's job one, it seems to me, for priests. Uh, Another responsibility of the priests is the priests are called to nurture they were to teach and you say exactly what is it the priests were to teach? Deuteronomy 33, 9 and 10. For they observed thy word. This is what the priests are to do. They kept thy covenant. They shall teach Jacob. That's another name for Israel. Uh, thy, thy ordinances uh, and thy law Or in Second Chronicles 17. We read this about what the priests are to do. Uh, this is in verse 9 of Second Chronicles 17. They taught in Judah having the book of the law of the Lord with them, they went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. So what they're doing is they're teaching the Bible. That's what they're doing. You know, they're not teaching, you know, pop psychology of the day. Uh, They're not standing up and saying, well, in my opinion, you know, here's what I think you ought to do as fathers, as wives, as whatever. This is what the word of God says. That's what they taught. Um, And that's the responsibility of of a priest. Now, why is it advantageous to sit under the teaching of a priest? Now, that question comes up a number of occasions in the Old Testament. What is it that a good priest does? I'll take you to Malachi 2 6 through 8. A good priest, according to Malachi, is going to be the messenger of the Lord. Now, in context, what this means is that if you're sitting under a good priest who is teaching God's word, there ought to be a sense as you listen to a good priest where you say to yourselves, I don't know that I ever would have gotten that as I read this passage. As, gosh, I, I mean, this, this, this teacher, this priest is showing some things that I never would have been able to see by myself. And uh, as a result of this, I think I have a better idea who God is and what he's saying to me in some of these boring passages of Scripture. That ought to be what we feel and sense uh, if there's a good and faithful priest Uh, that is teaching God's Word in any context, in a small group, in a Sunday school class, uh, in church services, that's what should be happening. A good priest is going to keep his people from stumbling. Uh, And he's going to keep his people from stumbling because he's going to point out what the Word of God says. And if you're going to keep them from stumbling, you've got to do what's not particularly popular in our day and age. You might have to say, here's some things that God's Word says you're not supposed to do. Uh, We still seem to live in a day and age where people's attitude toward God is they want to have a grandfather in heaven, not a father in heaven, a grandfather in heaven, uh, as C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, The Problem of Pain, who will look down on all of us and say, at the end of every day, I hope a good time was had by all. Well, you get to do that as a grandfather. You know, with your grandchildren, you know, know, kids, I'm not going to discipline you. We're just going to have some fun. We're going to play in the mud and, you know, we're going to do all this cool stuff we get to do. I'm loving being a grandparent, uh, uh, by the way. But if you're a parent... There are times as a parent, you've got to point out some things that you better not be doing or this could be bad for you. Now, that's not popular in this day and age, uh, but that's the role and responsibility of a priest. And we do that so that uh, people will not stumble. Uh, thirdly, Joshua 21:45 tells us this in, in our text. A good priest is going to remind us that not one of the good promises of God have failed. Every single one of them has come to pass. What do we find happening uh, in the uh, book of Joshua? What we find happening in the book of Joshua is that the ten spies live on. You remember the story of the ten spies? Oh, they're giants in the land. How can we possibly defeat these giants? What are we going to do? And then there was uh, the two spies that gave the good report. Uh, The ten spies were saying, "Uh, the giants are too big. God's too small. What are we going to do? God promised us this land, told us we can take it. We don't want to believe the promise. Well, I think the ten spies are alive and well in every church in America today. Uh, people will say, you know what, I know you've made a lot of promises to God about your marriage, about your family, about your faith commitment, about your desire, you know, to trust the Word of God. But give it up. Give it up. It doesn't work. We hear those kinds of messages constantly, the ten spies are alive and well and a good priest is going to teach us the promises of God don't fail. A good priest is going to teach us the truth about who God is. I, uh, over the Christmas holidays, someone gave me this book, uh, Practicing God's Presence by uh, Brother Lawrence. I don't know if you've heard of Brother Lawrence. Uh, he was a monk that was born in 1610. Uh, I, I don't know how to convey uh, what I'm trying to get at uh, well, except but just read a section from this book. This is a monk. People from around the world came to him because he had such a close relationship with God. The reality of Jesus Christ so permeated his heart and life that people said, I want to be like Brother Lawrence. So they just want to spend time with him to find out what made this uh, monk tick. Uh, as, uh, you know, a lot of these are letters that he writes to people who are trying to figure out, so Brother Lawrence, how do I get this kind of special something with God that you have? Uh, you really need to read the whole book. Let me just read a, a portion here. Today, I've quit formal set prayers, except those that go with being a monk. My priority is to be in God's presence and stay there. That's where I focus on devotion to Him, a real presence of God. In other words, this devotion is my soul's regular, quiet, private conversation with God. This is where I find joy and how I stay content. Sometimes the joy is so intense that I have to tone it, tone it down. Wouldn't that be great? So, such great joy in the presence of God, you've got to tone the joy down. And I'm afraid that I might look silly. Yet I'm 100% sure my soul has been filled with God this past 30 years. I'm trying not to bore you with too many details, but I should explain how I see myself before, before God, my king. I'm a loser full of faults, flaws, and weaknesses. I've wronged God in so many ways. I've regretted this greatly and confessed it to God and asked for his forgiveness. What can I do but abandon myself in his hands and have him do with me what he wants? But my king is full of mercy and goodness. Instead of making me feel bad, he hugs me with his love and invites me to dinner and he serves me with his own hands and gives me the keys to his treasure. He enjoys me and talks to me and treats me like a favorite child. He forgives me and takes away my bad habits even without mentioning them. The weaker I am, the more loved I feel. That's how I feel in his holy presence. Now, wouldn't you agree that's the way it ought to be? Isn't that what you want? Oh, God, take me... Into your presence, if that's what it means to be in your presence, to be filled with so joy, I I feel guilty, I'm so joyful. Well, that's what I want. Isn't that what you want? Well, that's the role and responsibility of a priest. One last thing. Priests are called to witness uh, and to offer refuge. I don't want to say a whole lot about this. I've talked about this a great deal already. Um, As we uh, look at what we see with these uh, uh, Levitical cities, they were set up for the purpose of witness. It was strategic. As I mentioned, some of these cities were not even possessed by the Israelites at that point. So this is call it the five-year plan, the 10-year plan for Israel. How are we going to make a difference? Well, we can't make a difference for God if we don't ever think about how we're going to get out of this place here and out into the world. Uh, if all we think about is our Bible studies in the church and our Sunday school classes in the church and what we're doing on Sunday morning in the church, and because of that, we don't have any time to get outside the church. Well, we're not being priests. Because priests take the message of God outside of the building, out to where the people are. And we better have a strategy to do that, or we're not going to make a difference uh, among the people where we live. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty obvious from this text. And you can say, well, what kind of part did they play as a city of refuge? Six of these 48 cities were cities of, of refuge. Uh, they were the place where you could come from the blood avenger who is chasing you. Uh, they were the place where you could come and be safe for a while. And there are people in our community who aren't ready to go out and evangelize. They're not ready to go out and tell people about Jesus. They just want to come someplace where it's safe. Uh, someplace where they can say, if I, if I can just be here and be in these walls and be around these people for a while and not be judged, not be condemned, just find that I'm safe and find this God who's going to hug me, this God who's going to forgive me. Uh, This God who's going to tell me that that he loves me and wants me in his presence. Boy, that'd be wonderful if I could find a church like that. Uh, In fact, I'm convinced if we want to reach younger people in our day and age, we've got to give a whole lot more attention uh, to the role of the church uh, as a city of refuge. Jenny Fiefel is on our staff. Uh, She is a postmodern age, at least Um, she did a survey of of a number of her friends who are outside the church. Just ask them three questions. Do you go to church? Why are we not? Is there anything that churches could be doing better? So think now about your strategy, my strategy. We want to reach out to people who are not in church, and especially uh, who are younger. That's the challenge, I think, for every church today. I'm only going to read some responses from people who don't go to church. She did talk to people who went to church, but I am especially interested in those who don't go to church and what they say. Age 35. By by the way, before you freak out on some of these responses, I'm not endorsing their response. I'm just reading these responses. So they're going to say some things that you're going to say, ooh, gee, that makes me uncomfortable. But but just know, I'm just telling you what uh, some people said. Age 35. I, I don't go to church. I want to find a church that's more open to alternative lifestyles and more accepting. I feel God loves everyone no matter what. I want to find a church that teaches tolerance, acceptance, and love, that is active in community affairs in a helpful manner. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm asking the entire religion to change a belief structure based on my personal perceptions. Uh, Second person, age 35. I don't go to church due to bad experiences from too many judgmental people. Someone age 21. I'm an atheist, but I go with my boyfriend on holidays, which means we uh, may be more strategic perhaps on holidays. If they could spice things up and make it not so traditional, I'd appreciate it. Someone else, uh, 21. I work on Sundays, so I can't go to church. The church people could work on being more understanding and supportive and less closed minded in Judge Mel's Picking up a theme here. Someone 29, I rarely go to church. I feel they push the offering plate too much. Someone twenty two, I don't see a reason to go to church. I have a busy life and God is everywhere. Apparently, don't need to know God's word. I'm supposed not to give a commentary. I'm just I'm sorry for that. Uh, someone age 35. I only go to church on Christmas. Some priests are just not so good in getting the message through. Churches could spend less on money stuff than so they or excuse, spend less money on stuff. They don't really need like special lighting effects and give the money to people who really need it. And then someone 21. And I think I'll stop with this one. Why would I go to church? Everything I want to know about Christianity can be learned independently. The church offers me nothing. Even if I were a Christian, I'd have little to use for the church. You can help others and practice Jesus' teaching and never step into a church. What would I do there? Become indoctrinated? What could churches do better? Well, they could educate their flock. When a 21 year old agnostic can prove a church going Christian wrong by quoting simple scripture, then something is wrong. I can't disagree with that. Here I'm commenting again, aren't I? When, uh, when church going Christians commit blatant violations of Christ's teaching, then something's wrong. You also might want to do something about the smell in churches. (laughs) They tend to have a stench of steel penitentiary. I have a few others here, but I think you can get the point. There are younger people who are saying, I might go to church if it could be a place of refuge for me. If churches wouldn't lead with their judgments, everything that's wrong, their condemnations, if somehow... Uh, it is a place where you could experience the presence of God and by that feel that there's a God in heaven who wants to love you and hug you and, and forgive you your sins. Now, I might be interested in that kind of place, but I'm not so interested if all of this is judgment and the passing of offering plates. Let, let me uh, close with this. This is from uh, Samuel Shoemaker. This uh, Perhaps you've heard this. It's been around for, uh, for some time. Um, as a church, we need to be a place of worship. As a church, we need a place of nurture. As a church, we need to be a place where uh, people witness for Jesus as a church. We need to be a place uh, that uh, uh, offers safety and security. Uh, but uh, Samuel Schubaker said this. He, he was an evangelist. You can hear, hear this in his statement. I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door through which men walk when they find God. There's no use my going way inside and staying there. When so many are still outside, and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched, groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. May we, as New Testament priests... Recognize that that is our charge and our calling, to go out to family and friends outside of these walls and let them know that there's a God in heaven who still wants to show his presence and his power in the hearts and lives of people. There's a God in heaven who's got a word called the Bible that's relevant to families, relevant to marriage, relevant to people struggling with depression or anger or job issues. There's a God in heaven. Uh, who is encouraging us to come in through the door and meet him. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, it's amazing what we can find if we dig into your word. I certainly didn't expect to find what I discovered this week uh, looking at Joshua chapter 21. But Father, if we could only be priests like these priests, uh, if we could get a vision to reach out to the people around us and Bring them into the presence of God. If we could become a presence driven church where people know that when they come here, they're going to hear about the power and the presence of God when they meet us at Wayzata high school or when they meet us at the Mall of America, that they may see something of the power and the presence of a living God who loves us and sent his son to die for us. May we have a message that's winsome to the people who are seeking, but they don't know where to look. May we be attractive and the love that we display and the message that we give so that those who doubt that the church is where they want to be may come clamoring because they know they can find God here. God, may we, where we live this week, become the door through which people can go and find Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.